1972, there were two men hunting on the South Sea island of Guam when they made a startling discovery. They found a Japanese soldier. His name was Soichi Yokoi. And for 28 years, this soldier had lived on the island in a jungle cave. After the Japanese surrendered in World War II, U.S. planes had dropped leaflets on the island announcing the news. Yokoi had read the leaflets, but he refused to believe the enemy's offer of amnesty. For over a quarter of a century, Yokoi had lived in fear of being captured. He spent his days in the cave and only came out at night. He lived off frogs and rats and snails and nuts and mangoes. The war was over. Victory had been decided. In fact, a nuclear explosion turned out to be the decisive blow. News of Japan's surrender had been received, but it had not been believed. And because Soichi Yokoi didn't know the war was over, he lived a life of fear and of bondage. And sadly, this is the plight of many Christians. The war in us is over. Victory was won on the cross of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of our Lord Jesus has set off a spiritual chain reaction so powerful, so far-reaching, that it touches and transforms everyone who knows and believes. The cross of Jesus generates a miracle in the deepest part of a person. At the core of our being, we become a new creation in Christ. Yet like you, Koi, if we don't believe the truth, it'll have minimal impact. You know, the Bible teaches that men and women are born into sin, that rebellion is genetic, that sin is in our DNA. Job 5 verse 7 tells us that sparks fly the day we're born. At the outset of our lives, there's already conflict and friction with us and God's will. Hey, we're a piece of work from day one. Rebellion and pride and stubbornness and selfishness rule the roost in a human heart. At the controls of a non-Christian is a sinful nature for which we didn't ask. And here's a crucial truth. There was nothing you could do about it. Jeremiah 13 verse 23 asks a question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? We can't change the pigment of our skin any more than a leopard can change his spots into stripes. What we is is what we is. And Jeremiah concludes, then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. In other words, the odds of you living a flawless life are the same chances of a leopard changing his spots. Not very good. Spiritually speaking, no man rises above his nature on his own. See, we can clean ourselves off and spruce ourselves up on the outside. Oh, we can act religious, and we can put on a happy face and pray impressive prayers and even live a kind and sacrificial life, but sin still lurks within us, and a transformation is needed. This is why our salvation takes a wow. It takes a big, bold miracle from God. As we've talked about over the last two times, in a mysterious, in a spiritual, but a very real sense, when Jesus died on the cross, we died with him. We died to sin. The old man, the nature governed by sin, was nailed to the cross 
once and for all with Jesus. A Christian is now both dead and alive. Inwardly, we're now dead to sin and alive to God. The power of sin is broken in our lives. When a person believes the truth about Jesus and is born again, they get a new heart. The Holy Spirit gives them a nature that now loves God and loves others. A Christian still feels the urge to sin, but the desire doesn't originate in his spirit. It's a leftover from his past. Before we became Christians, sinful thoughts and habits and assumptions and feelings rooted themselves in our flesh. We taught our minds and our reflexes and our impulses how to sin and how to desire evil. But this is no longer us. It's no longer the real you. When we're tempted, we need to say, no way, not me. No way, not me. We need to renounce the old life develop a new identity, and live in harmony with who we are in Christ. When I was in high school, I dated a gal who had a dog named Butch. Before our first date, she didn't tell me about Butch, the ferocious German shepherd that she had, who reacted violently to doorbells. And as soon as I pushed that button, that beast bounded around the corner, leaped up, and pinned me against the brick wall. The girl's mom had to call down her dog to free me. And I tell you, I was petrified. Somehow, I overcame our rocky start, and I asked her out again. This time, though, I made sure that Butch was chained. On our second date, when I walked up the driveway, old Butch, he came running out of the garage just like last time, barking and snarling like the first time we met. But this time, the chain on his neck choked him to a stop. I laughed. I kind of mumbled something like, dumb dog. As I went to the door to escort my date. If I remember correctly, I even kicked a little dirt in his face on the way back to the car. But as we walked back to my car, I noticed the chain around Butch's neck. The other end of the chain was just lying in the garage. It wasn't tied to anything. It was just laying there loose on the floor. And it scared me to death. I raced back to my car. I found out later that when Butch was younger, his chain was tied to a tree. And whenever he would run further than the length of his chain, it would strangle him. It would choke him. He learned how far he could run before he choked. After a while, it became such a reliable habit that the family no longer bothered tying the loose end of the chain. They didn't need to. Butch was conditioned. And the Butch phenomena is what happens to a Christian. The work of Jesus on the cross breaks the chain and pull of sin. But because we're used to living under sin's control, we continue to serve sin rather than the righteousness we've set free, been set free to pursue. You know, I continued to visit Butch's family for a while, and I was always glad when that dumb dog never wised up and realized the truth about his situation. And I'm sure Satan thinks the same about many Christians. Ignorance is our number one nemesis. As Jesus told us in John 8, verse 32, the truth shall make you free. See, here's the first key to living a victorious Christian life. You got to know that you know. You are not the same. 
In Christ, you're a new you. You're now dead to sin and alive to God. You need to take a good look behind you and realize that the chain of sin was severed by the cross of Jesus Christ. You're now free to be all that God wants you to be. As Paul puts it in verse 6, knowing this, that the old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Knowing this, he says, our number one priority, we have got to know. But there's a second key. We know, and then we reckon it so. Verse 11 tells us, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. Notice the question is not whether sin is present in a Christian's life. Sadly, sin will always be present with us. As long as I occupy a fallen body and I live in a fallen world, I'm going to be tempted to sin. But I don't have to let it have its way and rule over me. You and I are not victims. See, when I became a Christian, the inner man changed. Just not the outer man. I still remember how to sin. Sin is programmed into my thoughts and into my reflexes, into my actions and my reactions. Using Paul's terminology, the old man trained the body of sin. And additionally, the world around me tries to reinforce these sinful patterns. But Jesus crucified the old man, that sin nature, and he planted in us a new nature, one that's alive to God. That means that we're now under new management. You know, using computer lingo, we've received new hardware in our spirit, but now we need to update the software. That is, we need to renew our minds. See, if you want to run at peak capacity, the software has to be compatible with the hardware. Run old software on new hardware and don't expect the computer to function much differently than it did prior. You need a renewed mind to show improvement. We need to learn to think and act and even react in harmony with who we are as children of God. Paul uses this term reckon. It means to treat a fact as if it's true. To reckon it so is to take seriously what's happened to me inwardly and now apply it to me outwardly. There's a Jesuit priest in East Los Angeles named Greg Boyle. He's the founder and director of Homeboy Industries. Homeboy Industries. Greg has put together a team of physicians trained in the laser technology of tattoo removal. Greg reaches out to former gang members, and he removes their tattoos, which, by the way, is critical for their future. For most employers won't hire someone with a gang tattoo. In fact, a tattoo makes the person wearing it a constant target for rival gangs. A person with a gang tattoo is in danger just walking down the street. And most importantly, the tattoo's permanence reinforces the belief that the gang has a never-ending claim on its members. Thus, when a tattoo is removed, it gives a person permission to embrace a new identity. Apparently, the laser removal of a tattoo is a very, very painful process. People who've had the procedure described it as pouring hot grease onto your skin. 
And yet, despite the pain, Homeboy Industries has a waiting list of over a thousand names. Evidently, the longing to be free, the lure of a new life and a new identity are so strong that people gladly endure the pain. See, this is what it means to reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. I've got to allow what's true on the inside to fill up and to shape what I am on the outside. These changes may or may not involve tattoo removal, but it definitely involves removing sinful attitudes and habits and sinful pleasures and sinful relationships. In Christ, you and I have a new identity. We've gone from the devil's gang to now God's family, and we need to live like it. Now, whatever it is that associates you with your old life, whatever it is that puts a target for temptation on your back or poses a spiritual danger to you and to others, you need to get it removed. You need to laser it out of your lifestyle. See, here's the big thought in today's message. Jesus gives us a choice. Before we became a Christian, we were a slave to sin. We were the dog that ran to the end of the chain and choked himself. We were tied up. Sin gave you just enough rope to make you think you were in control. But run too far and your sin snapped you back into bondage. Just because you could go three or four weeks without a drink or without pornography. You thought you didn't have a problem. But try to shake free for longer and that trap snaps back. If you really know Jesus... This is the bondage that the Lord broke for us on the cross and in our hearts. Jesus now has given us a choice. You and I can live differently. Salvation is no illusion. The power of the cross of Jesus is real. It breaks sinful change. It transforms a believer on the deepest level. You and I are a new creation. But just like Butch, the dog whether you live free or whether you stay bound to the chain is the choice that you make. It's possible to be set free, yet still live as if you're not. Lying in a hospital bed on the eve of his open heart surgery, Bruce McIver, he asked his cardiologist, he said, Dr. Johnson, can you fix my heart? Well, Dudley Johnson is a skilled cardiologist, but he's a man of few words. Known to getting to the point, he said, sure, and he walked away. Well, after the 12-hour surgery, again, McIver asked his doctor, he said, in light of the blocked arteries you bypassed, how much more blood supply will I have now? Again, Dr. Johnson gave a terse reply. He said, all you'll ever need. Finally, as Bruce was being discharged, his wife had a question for Dr. Johnson. How will surgery affect my husband's future quality of life? Dr. Johnson paused for a few seconds, and then he answered, Mrs. McIver, I fixed your husband's heart. His quality of life is up to him. And this is where we're at in Romans chapter 6. Jesus has fixed our hearts, but our future quality of life depends on three choices that we are called on to make. First, we need to know that we know We need to really know that we're brand new in Christ, that we're dead to sin and alive to God. Second, we need to reckon it so. We need to embrace and to embody. 
Embrace the identity that's yours in Christ. And then embody that identity in how you think and in how you act. And then third, and here's a new term for us. It's a very important word. It's the word present. Read read with me again in verse 13. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, what's this business about members? Is Paul trying to recruit members for a new church? Is he selling memberships to the local health club? What's the deal here? And why does he mention instruments? Is he starting a band? I mean, what's meant by members and instruments? Well, members is an old way of talking about body parts. My members are my ears and my eyes and my brain and my hands and my tongue and my feet and my lips and my glands, etc., etc., etc. And I use my members as instruments or as tools that produce actions that either glorify God or promote sin. The New Living Translation renders verse 13, Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Now last time I mentioned that my, external, my exterior body is not the real me. There's more to me than meets the eye. I, I, for one, am glad. You can't size me up by taking my measurements, nor can I you. See, you and I are like an iceberg. You only see 10% of that iceberg. 90% of it is under the water. And the same is true of the real me. I'm under the surface. The real me is spiritual. See, my body is not the real me, but it does serve the real me. It's an instrument. It's a member. What I do with my members helps to reinforce my inner spiritual identity. If I were to think of myself as an athlete, I'd be in the gym, wouldn't I? My lungs pumping, my arms lifting, my legs running. I'd be getting my members in shape. If I saw myself as a scholar, well, my eyes and my mind would be engrossed in study. If I think of myself as a class clown, I'll use my tongue to crack jokes. My point is, our body and our minds are tools that we use, sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously, to bolster our identity. As I said before, identity determines behavior. But inversely, our behavior also strengthens and reinforces our identity. When I was growing up, I saw myself as a basketball player. It seems silly now, but my whole identity was to play pro basketball. And to this day, all you have to do is put me under a goal and toss me a basketball, let me hit a few baskets, and I'll start thinking I miss my calling. I promise you I will. The other day, I was at Quincy, my grandson's basketball game. And after the game, I walked out on the court and I took a few shots. Saw a kid that played high school basketball and I took a few shots and kind of thought I was something. And he kind of thought I was nothing, but, but I took a few shots. 
And it's amazing to me. Just a few shots and all those emotions came flooding back to me. They really did. I'm thinking, I should have pursued basketball. I gave up too soon. I might have had a chance. Listen, listen to this. One afternoon of an activity can conjure up an old identity. And this phenomenon impacts our relationship with God. One afternoon of indulging a bad habit or pursuing an old sin or hanging out with the wrong friends. And it weakens your faith. You start to doubt if you were ever a child of God in the first place. If I'm really a Christian, how could I be doing such things? Paul is telling us to stop the stuff that undermines who we are in Christ. When you allow your eyes and your ears and your members to entertain evil, it makes it harder to believe and reckon that you're dead to sin and alive to God. We need to stop misusing our members and start using them for good. Employ your members in ways that build up and reinforce your identity in Christ. Do the right stuff and it builds up your faith. When I read my Bible or when I attend church, when I hang out with other Christians or when I share my faith or when I take a stand for Jesus or when I do a kind deed in His name, it encourages me. I feel, I know that God is working my life. It reinforces who I am in Christ. Notice verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Sadly, on occasion, I'll run across a so-called Christian who uses God's grace as an excuse to sin. Well, since God promises to forgive us, I can just go ahead and sin here. How foolish is that? God's mercy and grace are motivations not to sin. God's grace is a means of overcoming our sin, not an encouragement to commit sin. It's been said, grace provides us freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. See, here's the problem. When you take advantage of God's grace or abuse God's grace, you're suddenly right back enslaved to the sin that you once escaped. Notice verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? See, whatever we obey soon becomes our master. Now, Paul uses an analogy here that was common to all Romans, a master and his slave. It's estimated that a third of the Roman Empire consisted of slaves, And of those who were free, about a sixth were former slaves. But slavery today is just as prevalent. Just as prevalent as it was in ancient Rome. In fact, there is an excellent chance this morning that you're sitting next to a slave or to an ex-slave. I know people enslaved to pride. They won't admit their faults and failures. And their refusal drives the people away that love them the most. I know folks enslaved to stuff. In their life, possessions come before people. They ruin relationships. I know a man who put fishing ahead of his wife. His bass boat sunk his love boat. I know folks enslaved to pleasure. 
They chase the highest high, the biggest buzz, even to the detriment of their marriage and their kids and their health. I'm sure you're getting the point here. In this room today, there are slaves to success and slaves to sports and slaves to money and slaves to alcohol and slaves to control and ease and food and fear and drugs and porn and hate. There's an old Bob Dylan song. Here's the lyrics. you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And it's true. Everybody serves somebody or something. And Paul is telling us that we need to make sure that our members, our toes and our nose, our hips and our lips, all that we are, serves God as a tool for righteousness. In the 14th century, two brothers, Reynold and Edward, they fought for the right to rule over Belgium. After a heated battle, Edward won, and he took his brother to live in his castle. A special room was built for Reynold. Well, Edward was criticized for imprisoning his own brother, but he insisted that Reynold wasn't a prisoner at all. He said Reynold could leave whenever he wanted. And true to Edward's word, Reynold's room had no guards, no bars, no chains, just a normal-sized door. So what was it that held Reynold? You see, Reynold had a nickname, Crossus. It's Latin for fat. The man was horribly obese. In fact, he was so big that he couldn't fit through a normal-sized door. And every day, Edward would send his best chefs to his brother's room with all kinds of scrumptious foods and desserts and pastries. And for 10 years, Reynold ate and ate and ate and remained confined to his room. All that brother had to have done to escape was to stop eating and slim down, and he could have just walked out. Yet Raynal was a prisoner, not of his brother Edward, but of his own appetites. Be careful not to abuse God's grace. Friends, we're all slaves, just to different masters. It's your choice. Jesus gives us the opportunity to choose. Verse 16 reminds us, do not know that to whom you do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey you are that one's slaves whom you obey to whom do you present your members you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to Jesus See here's the great tragedy a very real possibility you can be dead to sin and alive to God transformed on the inside by Jesus yet live as if nothing has happened Allow your members to serve sin, and it sucks you right back into the downward spiral. The Living Bible's rendering of Galatians 5 verse 1 is a warning to us. Christ has made us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get all tied up again in the chains of slavery. Why are you watching movies that are laced with obscenities and blasphemies? Why subject yourself to vice and violence? Why go back and feed on the very things God saved you from? Why are you reminding yourself of the thoughts and habits you ought to forget? Our old man was crucified with Jesus. The last thing we want to do is resurrect him. 
He's dead. So let the dead dog lie. Let's dwell on the new man and let's use our members to reinforce who we are in Christ. When I read God's word, it shines a light into my life that I can follow. When I serve God and others, I start to see myself as a servant. When I hang out with God's people, I begin to feel part of his church. What kind of a follower never takes instructions? What kind of a servant never bothers to serve? What kind of a family never hangs out together? Unless you present your members in ways that support your identity in Christ, your faith becomes diluted and you lose all of your spiritual momentum. I read of an Afghan woman who told a foreign correspondent why her friends continue to wear their burqas, the full body covering that was required by the Taliban. Even though they thought the burqas were unbearable, they continued to wear them. The woman said, We've lived in darkness so long, we are afraid of the light. And this is why some Christians don't dare to mature. It's easier to stay put in sin than it is to open up to something new. Reminds me of Danny Villegas. He served 70 months in a federal penitentiary for bank robbery. As soon as he was released, he walked into a Florida credit union and he told the clerk it was a holdup. She called the cops while Danny sat on the couch in the lobby and waited on their arrival. Turns out Danny had enjoyed prison life so much that he wanted to return. And as crazy as that sounds, a lot of Christians have done exactly the same. Rather than embark on a new life in Christ, they've opted to remain in prison to sin. I know Christians who find it easier to walk in the rut of sinful habits than to climb out of that rut and take the high road, develop new patterns in their life. To them, hanging out with old friends, even if they're obnoxious and detrimental, is more convenient than making new ones. They're more at home in the bar than they are in the church. They watch TV because it's less effort than reading their Bible. See, they are content to live in bondage because they've never used their members as tools of righteousness. Their outer life never reflects the inner man. Their salvation gets wasted. Just like Reynold, they're free, but they remain a prisoner by default. Verse 17 commends the Romans for choosing to be slaves of Jesus. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. God frees us from sin, not so we can sin again, but so that we can now be slaves of the good. In verse 19, Paul issues an apology. He says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Paul admits that it's a silly illustration here to compare slavery with righteousness. Far from confining, a slave to God is the person who's truly free. He lives an unhindered life. Righteousness is the most merciful taskmaster a slave will ever serve. It was the famous church father, Chrysostom, who was asked, What is God's slavery like? He replied, it is better than any freedom. Sin is a cruel boss, but our Heavenly Father treats His slaves as sons. And Paul adds in verse 19, For just as you presented your members 
as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Here Paul mentions what I call the snowball effect. Life tends to snowball, doesn't it? You get rolling in a certain direction and it builds momentum. One step leads to another, which leads to another. It's true with good or it's true with evil. See, the further you go in a direction, the easier it is to take that next step. And this is why we need to chase after righteousness with the same intensity and eagerness and aggressiveness with which we once pursued sin. I know some of you guys, you were some really, there, there's some really rowdy sinners in this room this morning. When you were on the other side, I mean, you, you sinned with gusto, trust me. You didn't just sin, you sinned with, I mean, you were a good sinner. You sinned hard. You could party with the best of them. You could drink them under the table. Today, I enjoy worshiping Jesus with you. But in that day, back then, I probably wouldn't have wanted to meet you in a dark alley. Charles Spurgeon once observed, the most useful members of a church are usually those who would be doing harm if they were not doing good. I agree. Hey, you were a rambunctious sinner. What Paul is saying is that now you need to turn into a rambunctious saint. Put that same energy and effort you put into sin, now put it into following righteousness. In the chapter's last few verses, Paul directs our attention forward. Up until now, he's pointed backward to the cross to stir up a desire for righteousness. But now he points to the results of our choices. Verse 21, What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. In other words, the life that you lived before you came to Jesus, it was full of pain and shame and death. Don't forget that. Why would you ever want to continue down that path? See, here's the first rule of employment. If you don't like the wages, don't take the job. Pretty simple, isn't it? And we're wise to compare the paycheck of sin with the gift of God. Moving forward in your life, what kind of payday looks best to you? A brief fling with pleasure or an eternity of joy? Fame on earth or favor in heaven? Respect or embarrassment, peace or conflict, love or hate. Look at the paycheck. Verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Walk in tomorrow to work and ask the boss if you can set your own wages. He'll say, you're nuts. But this is what, exactly what God allows us to do. Here we're offered a choice. You can choose sin and death, or you can choose righteousness and life. The choice is really up to you. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is warning us that sin always produces death. Of course, that's not what's on the price tag. You know that, don't you? You know that the devil is deceitful. You realize that the devil has swapped all of the price tags. He has. He makes you think that righteousness is burdensome and boring, while sin is exciting and pleasurable. But just the opposite is true. 
Sin causes death, if not immediately, in time. And it may not be someone's physical death. It can be the death of a relationship or a marriage or your sanity or your reputation. But sin causes death. Sin's wages are death, but God's gift is eternal life. And if I can set my own wages, I choose eternal life. God's gift. So let me sum up these last three weeks here in Romans 6. Know, please know that you know that you are dead to sin and you are alive to God. Then reckon outwardly what's true inwardly. And now present your members, your body and your mind as tools of righteousness to please God. And remember the words of the cardiologist. Jesus fixes your heart. Your quality of life is now up to you.